Hi, I want to welcome you to my podcast. My name is Corey Woods, and you are listening to Be a Woman and Not a Weak Ass Bitch. And on this podcast, we are going to talk about how women are powerful and incredible beings. And it's time to seriously kick some stereotypes, expectations, conditioning, and limitations to the curb. On this show, we are going to be diving deep into the discussions that celebrate female strength, resilience, and the fierce determination that has been a driving force throughout history. We will tackle tough topics and share inspiring stories. And I want to be able to provide you with tools and mindset shifts that you need in order to embrace your inner warrior. Thank you for joining. Hello, and welcome to my podcast today. I'm excited to be able to speak with Miss Beth Ray. Welcome. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing good. Good. Um, I know you are. We've been in contact for quite some time, and it's been so fun to get to know you and to hear your story. And I wanted to bring you on this podcast because of how intriguing your story was and, and how the calling that you have to be able to help women with the things that you've experienced has just been life-changing even for me to experience, to get to know, and to be a part of. And so today we want to talk about how to discover your own self-betrayal, but from the lens of essentially people who've been betrayed, especially within marriages. We're going to talk a lot about the marriage betrayal that Beth had experienced. You're going to hear a little bit about her story, but then we want to come back and talk about how, what self-betrayal is and how we can learn more about it for ourselves. You ready? Yes, let's go. Okay. So I'm just going to let you go ahead and jump right in and introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit about what you do. Okay. So I am a sexual betrayal trauma coach and essentially what um, my calling is, is to walk with women who have been sexually betrayed by their spouse from surviving to thriving. And I know how I have done this and I know um, the amount of healing that I've experienced from some different modalities that I've incorporated into my healing. And, um, I've also saw some of my friends who I've worked with the healing that's happened for them. So I, this is not something that I ever would have wanted. <laughs> like I would never have, um, wanted to be in this position, but this is where I am. So this is the calling that father has called me to. Right. And I don't think anyone really expects or wants to be in the situation that you are now in. Uh, tell us a little bit about your story and kind of what brought you here to help these women go from surviving to thriving, because that's essentially what it is, whether it's in a marriage or in their individual lives, all of us have experienced betrayal at some point. And then in turn, we all have experienced a form of self-betrayal. But this was kind of brought to light in your marriage. So I would love you to share a little bit what brought you about your story, what brought you here. Okay. So um, I'm just going to start at the beginning. So I was raised um, in a conservative plain group called Old German Baptist Brethren. Okay. And um, I was raised in Ohio, so I'm from the Midwest originally. I now live in Washington State. But um, 
that group, um, to see them, often people think they're Amish, but they are not. They look very similar in dress, but they're not as strict with the dress as the Amish are. They wear a white covering. They wear a cape dress that also includes an apron on the skirt. Mm -hmm. And the women all wear the same kind of pattern. So all the women wear the cape dress. All the women wear the, the white cap covering. Um, but they can use different fabrics. They all, you know, they tailor it or they tailor it to themselves. They wear whatever fabrics, prints, solids, whatever appeals to them. Um, but the pattern, and then the pattern is custom fit to them, but it's the same overall pattern that everyone is wearing. Uh, and the men commonly have beards. In the eastern part of the country and the midwest you would see more men wearing a black broad broad brim hat uh-huh don't see that as much in the western part of the country i don't really know why i just know that you don't you see it on sunday morning they all wear their hats to church but when they're out about in the community you don't see it as much um things have changed a little bit from when i was growing up but it used to be, and again, this is something that you'll see in the eastern, midwestern part of the country. The men wear broad falls. So these are jeans that button or snap. They have a flap in the front, no zipper. Uh-huh. Button, they button or snap across the front. Um, again, you don't see that as much on the West Coast. They wear more Levi's, Wranglers, those kinds of jeans. Um, and they... Um, They believe in Jesus. They teach Jesus. Mm -hmm. So it, they're, it's a Christian denomination. Okay. So that's how I was raised. Um, and I met my former husband when I was 18. Came to Washington State with a friend of mine. She was coming to see her fiance at the time. And she said, hey, would you come with me? And I was like, yeah, I've always wanted to go. <laughs> and... <laughs> Excuse me. I came with her and um, met my former spouse on that trip, and we started dating long distance. It was um, it was very much long distance. You know, we were we dated for two years. We were engaged for a year, but we dated for two years. And part of that two-year dating was that one-year engagement. Just to be clear on that. Um, and so we were back and forth several times between Washington and Ohio, and. Um, I, I had some reservations and I talked to some people about them. Um, one of them was, I talked to my mother and I was like, I don't know, something just feels off, but I don't know what it is. And she's like, well, do you need to break up with him? And I was like, well, I don't know why I would break, be breaking up with him because I don't know what's off. I don't know what's going on. And I talked to some others and they were like, Beth, he, he treats you like a queen. Like, this is amazing. I wish I had somebody that treated you the way he treats you. And I was like, okay, well, yeah, that, that is true. But I didn't necessarily share with them some of the things that gave me that hesitation. Uh -huh. now, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Right. <laughs> now I look back and I'm like, yeah, if you'd have shared with them some of the things, but I was embarrassed maybe to share with them 
some of it yeah and the hesitation um and so I proceeded and um I married him and on our honeymoon the on our wedding night um he came to bed did his thing rolled over and went to sleep and I had a lot of trouble sleeping that night and the next morning at breakfast I had this lump in my throat and I was holding back tears and I couldn't hardly swallow it I I didn't want to eat even because I just was like what have I done I'm because of how I was raised I was raised that divorce is wrong you do not get divorced and if you do get divorced you do not remarry right and and so I'm thinking I'm stuck. I'm stuck in this for the rest of my life. What have I done? And can I ask you what caused you to feel that way? So when you said he did his thing, like, was that the first time that you, can you just explain what that means? Just so I understand. Yes. So, um, I had never sexually been with a man. Okay. I'd never sexually been with anyone. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, and Physically, he had never sexually been with anyone either. Okay. But what I did not know was that he had looked at pornography since he was 12 years old. Oh, so you didn't know. So that, it it totally makes sense. I mean, how do you actually know someone has a pornography addiction at that age? I mean, you just don't know what you don't know, especially with the way perhaps maybe sex was even taught to you, you know? Right. Yeah. So. Um, I had no idea that he had, he had, he had this pornography addiction because that's what it is. I had no idea. Um, And I wouldn't know for, it was around two or three years that we had been married that he came to me um, the first time and confessed. But before we move on to, into that um, on our honeymoon, then we kind of had a two part honeymoon because we went to Niagara Falls for our honeymoon. We went back to Ohio. We had a U-Haul trailer loaded up with my things to move to Washington. And so we went back to my parents and then we left from there and headed for Washington. And, um, <laughs> excuse me. Um, on that trip back to Washington, he actually masturbated in front of me and I did not have a word for what masturbation for what that was, what that Uh was. I remember how it made me feel. I remember um, what I did as I sat there and experienced him doing that in front of me. Uh Uh, I didn't have a word to put to the the actual act. Right. Um, So a couple of years into our marriage, he comes to me, he says, I've been looking up pornography and I'm like, okay, so you need to repent. You need to confess and repent this. Mm-hmm. And I, I forgave him and we went on. A couple more years, um, he comes to me and he confesses again. And I'm like, okay, so you need to confess and repent again, but we need help. We yeah. need some help. Um, and so we went to a minister in our fellowship And he confessed to this minister that he looked at pornography and instead of, you know, even, so it's amazing how things just 
we don't think about things or we don't understand things until years and years later, because it's only been recently in the last year that I was like, wait a minute, the minister should have said, you have a problem. You need to fix it. Instead, I was told you need to have sex with him every day. Oh my gosh. To help him with this problem. And let me ask you this about your minister too, because in my religious upbringing, we're taught to go to our clergy, right? Or I I don't even know what the word would be, but they're called bishops in our, in my religious organization, but none of these people are professionally trained to deal with trauma. Was, is that kind of your experience with this uh, minister as well? Right. Yeah. This minister was not trained. Now, there are some in our fellowship, in the, I'm not part of that fellowship anymore, but there are some in the Old German Baptist fellowship uh-huh. that are trained and do work with couples. So that is out there. I don't know if at that time that they would have been out there, but they are, they are now. Oh my gosh. It's so strange, like the hindsight, because you're not the first woman that I've heard say this, where (laughs) the answer to solve your husband's pornography addiction is to have more sex. That does not make sense to me. (laughs) So you're a little sweet, innocent heart, I bet. Like, what was your experience of that? I mean, I'm sure you sensed something, but tell me a little bit about that. Well, I accepted it. I was like, okay, but what... What added insult to injury was he told the minister, yeah, I look at pornography because Beth won't have sex with me. Oh, that is disgusting. <laughs> Continue. So, so guess what Beth carried around for years? His pornography problem is my fault. Oh, mm-hmm. But yet, why would I want to be having this beautiful what's supposed to be a beautiful symbol of love in a marriage why would I want to be doing that with someone who has masturbated in front of me and has also raped me Mm -hmm. in our marriage why would I want to be doing that women don't marry their rapists right Right. And tell me a little bit, because I know we've discussed this before, but when it comes to marital rape, like, just help us understand what does that mean? Just so we're on the same page. So marital rape is rape. It is either coercion or a physical taking, just like rape, you know, um, like someone would be raped on the street. It is physical. You can't fight against them. Um, they take what they want doesn't matter they shove themselves inside of you and so it's rape but it's inside of a marriage relationship okay which makes it marital rape and and I want to just to add compassion for those women who've experienced that I don't know if it's talked about very much I know that it's out there but essentially some of the stuff that you experienced, at what point did you realize that what he was doing was not okay? Well, remember Beth that carried around this, his pornography problem? His yeah. Pornography addiction is my fault because I don't want to have sex with him, which was true. I didn't want to have sex with him. Yeah. But yeah. one day I remember like so vividly one day I was working in my kitchen and the thought just hit. He also told the minister he's been addicted or he's 
looked at pornography since he was 12 years old. I've only known him since he was 18. This is not my problem. And a weight lifted off of me. And from that day, it, my, my thinking around it completely changed. Like this isn't my problem. Mm -hmm. And this isn't for me to solve. This is his problem. Right. He needs to take care of it. And it was several more years before I realized or understood that marital rape was actually a thing and that that is what had happened to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And at what point in your marriage did all of these things kind of come to light for you? Like how long have you been married? How many kids did you have? Um, when I realized that his pornography addiction was not my problem, um, we had probably been married. Oh, maybe eight, nine years. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a long mm-hmm. time to carry that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that you're not alone. This is very common, especially women who um, maybe grew up in a more religious setting. And I don't want to say it's more common, but you just don't know what you don't know. Like culturally speaking, if that's what you were taught, if pornography was never talked about or never addressed, right? And the simple solution is to have more sex. <laughs> Sorry. And, and, you know, it's only been in the last really 15 years Uh that we've, that, that we've known how accessible it is via the internet. Oh, right. I know. Before that it was magazines and pictures. It wasn't videos and Photoshopped pictures. And, you know, there wasn't what there is today. Mm Mm-hmm. And so one thing that, that really bugs me is my dad, I think, I know my dad blames himself for part of this. And my parents didn't even know to ask those questions. Of course. I mean, now I'm like, well, you can guarantee before my daughter gets married, that boy and I are sitting down to have a conversation before she even starts dating him. He wants to date her. He and I are going to have a conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's going to be awkward. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I'm the point blank ask, do you look at pornography? When was the last time you looked at pornography? Yeah. And I'm the, I'm a woman. So he's going to be talking to the mother of this girl. He's wanting to court. But if he looks at it and he's looked at it in the last however long, uh-uh, you take care of yourself, dude. And then we will talk because I'm not allowing my daughter to go into that situation. Right. And I want to ask you a very personal question because not everyone has like the similar religious beliefs that you do, but why is pornography considered a betrayal in a marriage? Why do you think that? Because pornography is adultery. Tell me more. So Yeshua, Jesus Mm -hmm. said, and he was expanding on what Moses had written in the Torah. He said to even look on a woman to lust after her is to commit adultery with her in your heart. Okay. So that's what these men are doing. They're looking at a woman masturbating or a couple looking like they're having pleasurable sex. Mm. And they are allowing that to arouse them. And then they take care of that arousal themselves. Yes. And 
And when you guys got married, some of this, because this is a part of your value system within a marriage, right? Because not everyone has like the similar values, which is not even a problem. I, I can tell that from you. It's That's not the problem. But you married this man because you thought that you guys were on the same page with some things is my guess. And you didn't know what you didn't know. I mean, it's so strange to look back on. Don't you think? Yes, it is. Yeah. And, and I, and, you know, pornography addiction is, is, is rampant, you know, and it's definitely plaguing and it's hurting families. It's hurting individuals. It's causing like insane amount of heartache amongst families, amongst marriages. And you've kind of experienced that. It sounds like that was almost what was the catalyst for like the other forms of betrayal within your marriage. Would you say that? I don't want to, I don't want to put words to your story. (laughs) Yes, I would agree with that. Yeah. And and it's so interesting. Uh, So what did, did he ever do anything about it? Like what, what happened, what came of that? Um, Hold on. I want to make sure I'm asking the right question because you guys are now almost divorced. Like you're going through the divorce process, but at what point did you decide? How about this? At what point did you decide enough was enough? So we had been married probably, I would say probably 10 years. At mm-hmm. um, and I was literally praying that he would die. Oh, wow. I was literally praying, Father, take him out. Because then my pain can end. Yes, his children will mourn and grieve and miss him. But... It is my opinion that a man looking at pornography is opening the door to his home wide open and saying, devil, you're welcomed here. Come on in. And that definitely affects the rest of the family. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting because I kind of want to shift like I want to still hear more about your story and kind of how you got to this place, but it's so interesting that you were at that point of so much pain that thinking his life ending would end your pain. But what did you realize from that? Like kind of what came next after that? So, um, (laughs) (laughs) when he didn't, I mean, like I even had suggestions. This is how it could happen. Like I (laughs) submitted to this. (laughs) Anyone's wondering, I've repented. But yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so one morning I woke up, I rolled over, I looked at him and I said, Are you still looking at pornography? And he got really still and he got really quiet and he said, Yes. And I said, Okay, you need to move out. Calm, collected. I mean, probably said it just like that. Okay, yeah. you need to move out. And um I asked him, I don't know, two or three days later, have you found anywhere to live yet? And he was like, no. And I said, I was serious. This cannot go on any longer. Mm-hmm. I have two young sons. I have young girls, two young girls. My youngest was two at the time, almost two at the time. And this cannot continue. This has got to stop. Yeah. And he was like, Okay, like he didn't take me seriously. And part of that is my fault. I own my responsibility in that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because I had said things before that I didn't follow through with. And so why would I, why would I be serious this time if I was never serious and followed through with anything the other times? Yeah. So he did get a place to live and he moved out and he was moved out for around five months. Mm -hmm. Um, But I had no support. I had no, and when I say support, I'm not talking financially. He still was taking care of everything financially. Um, We just didn't live in the same house. Um, but I had no emotional support. Mm-hmm. I had no spiritual support. Um, I was told, well, at least it wasn't a physical affair. Oh my gosh. It's just pornography. At least yeah. it's not a physical affair. Um, I was told you need to, because I would not attend fellowship. We attended a small group. Um, and I would not attend fellowship on the same Saturdays that he attended because uh-huh. I knew I knew that he would take advantage of being around other people and he would touch me and he would put his arm around me and he would act like things were normal yeah and I had already played that game multiple yeah. times and I wasn't doing it anymore and so um I was then told that I'm hurting the congregation because I won't attend at the same time he attends yeah which was ridiculous and so I allowed him to move back home and never should have. Yeah. Never okay. Have. I love that you said that because I want that to lead into like self-betrayal because that's essentially, it sound is that where you started? When did you start learning about or taking responsibility for the self-betrayal that you experienced in your marriage? I mean, because you've mentioned a few things like he didn't take me seriously. People were gaslighting you. Um, you know, people were judging you because you weren't doing the X, Y, and Z, you know, there's reasons for that, you know? Well, I think, of course, looking back, I think, um, the biggest or the, maybe the most memorable time that I recognized the betrayal of myself Mm -hmm. is when I had that light bulb moment of, this isn't my fault. This isn't my problem. Right. I right. have been betraying myself. I betrayed myself by taking that advice to have sex with him every day. Yeah. Multiple times if he wanted it. Because that's what I was told I should be doing as his wife. It's so he, the verse in the Bible, and I don't know chapters and verses. I know okay. what it is, but I can't tell you where it is. <laughs> okay. Um, but it says, Paul is talking to the Corinthians and he says, um, a woman does not have control of her own body, but the husband and a husband does not have control of his own body, but the wife. However, when that verse is usually quoted to those of us who have been sexually betrayed or are being sexually betrayed, it's quoted to us that you don't have control over your own body. I do because I'm your husband. Never mind that the next part of the verse says the husband doesn't have control of his own body. The wife has control of his body, mm-hmm. but it's completely taken out of context. Yeah. And, and it is religious abuse. So my gosh, so religious abuse, 
um, sexual abuse you experienced in your marriage, uh, the physical, the mental, emotional, it sounds like you were experiencing all sorts of abuse and out, you know, and what happens to your, what happened to you? Like I, I, you explained to me when I, one time, when I asked you, like, what happened to your brain? You said you developed complex PTSD. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is that? What, what, what is that? What was that like for you? So, um, there's PTSD and uh-huh. then there's complex PTSD. And I actually, um, went to a EMDR therapist Mm-hmm. that diagnosed me with PTSD, which I had already diagnosed myself with PTSD. I knew the symptoms that I was having. I knew I was having flashbacks. I knew that I was um, I was very jumpy. I was very, right. I was on high alert. Like I knew everything that was going on around me. I was also dealing with massive amounts of intrusive thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, Thankfully, father spared me from nightmares. That is not something that I've dealt with or sleep issues. Neither one of those are things I've dealt with with PTSD, but the rest of it, I had it. And um, I did EMDR and, but I've continued to seek out healing. Yes. Um, And every time I finish something, I say, okay, father, what's next? And he always says, okay, this is your next thing. And um, in the last couple of years, I've done cognitive processing therapy, which is for PTSD. It's what they use for veterans in the military Mm -hmm. for lessening the symptoms of their PTSD. And that therapist actually said, you don't have PTSD, you have complex PTSD. And I was like, what's the difference? And she said, PTSD is from one instance of something happening. Complex PTSD is from multiple instances related to the same thing happening. So there is discovery. Right. So there might be this one-time discovery of discovering that you're being betrayed. Your spouse is looking at pornography. Your spouse has had an affair or multiple affairs, or your spouse has um, utilized prostitutes or, you know, whatever their variety of sexual addiction is. You make uh-huh. that discovery that can create PTSD. I actually dealt with, you remember I said he came to me with two years in our marriage and said, I look at pornography and I forgave. We moved on. And then he came to me again and I look at pornography. I forgave. We sought help, was not helpful. That, excuse me, that is called trickle disclosure. Uh-huh. So um, he actually, I actually have instances I remember of him telling me the types of pornography that he looked at and the reasons behind why he looked at them. Um, and when he would look at it, why he would look at it, the reasons behind him looking at it. So I, there's all this, and that this wasn't like a sit down. This is, this is when it was like different times throughout our marriage that he would disclose these things to me. Yeah. And so it was like, I had trauma, but then now I've got more trauma on top of that trauma. And then there's more trauma on top of that trauma with each disclosure. Right. So that's trickle disclosure. I have never heard that term before, but it makes a lot of sense. So you've been working through the calm, like CPTSD. That's what you've been working through. And are you still working through it right now? 
Um, I'm not working through it in relation to my marriage now. Okay. I'm working through it in relation to my daughter's death. Okay. So you are. So I've, cause I've heard complex PTSD also described in the way, not in the way that you did exactly, but also like there are other just multiple traumas, even aside from like the main trauma. Like if we were just to look at like the sexual abuse that you experienced and the betrayal and the sexual betrayal, I should say within your marriage, there were other traumas happening outside of that as well. Right. Um, and I'm really sorry about your daughter. I did not know that actually about, I didn't know that part of your story. What was your daughter's name? Her name is Sheridan. Sheridan. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, we'll have to talk more about that another time because I did not know. <laughs> this adds to the incredible woman that you are in the sense of like, you've been through a lot and you're still showing up and you still want to be able to help women like through yeah. the experiences they have to go from surviving to thriving, like you said. Um, I kind of want to just mention a few things because some of the things that I've learned when I've watched my clients, when they've experienced betrayal, let's say in their marriage, um, there's a lot of behaviors, you know, that come from it, that come from the PTSD and that they are survival. They're considered survival mechanisms. Um, a lot of times we isolate, I shouldn't say we, but I mean, yeah, I could say we, because I am a woman I've experienced betrayal for myself. Uh, a lot of times we isolate, maybe we accept blame. That's kind of what you were mentioning. You said the first eight years of your marriage, you blamed yourself, right? Uh, I think people who have experienced betrayal or abuse, they often will ignore personal boundaries. Maybe they'll self-neglect um, their physical and emotional well-being and just solely focusing on surviving. That's what we do, especially when we don't have the emotional and spiritual support from a community that we relied on for most of our lives, which it sounds like that's kind of what you did. You relied on that community. Uh, some of, some of the times we will like rationalize the abuse. Did you ever find yourself doing that? Um, I can't say that I did. Okay. I can't say that I did. Okay. I remember when I was, I can, I want to share a quick story just to, to kind of help people make sense of what that looks like. But I remember a lot of times when one of my, I had, I was seeing a psychotherapist. That's what he called himself. And I remember him explaining how victims will sometimes protect their abusers. Oh Yeah. So that's kind of what I meant by that, where it will rationalize like the, the enormity or, or will rational, will rationalize away the pain that other people's behavior caused us. Okay. See, I wouldn't have called that rational rationalization. I would, have, I would call it, um, I definitely protected my abuser. Yes. I, I lied for my abuser. Uh-huh. And I pride myself on being a very honest person. Yeah. Um, but. I lied for him continually. Yeah. Well, why do you um, think we do that? Why do you think when people are abused or experience betrayal in that way, why do you lie for them? Um, I think, I think it's multifaceted. Okay. I know, I know for myself, one reason was shame. Mm, that's a huge culprit. Continue. Yep. One reason is shame. 
Um, another reason is we don't even know what to do with what's happening to us. We don't know how to make sense of it. We don't know how to understand it. We don't know. Um, yeah, we just, we don't understand why they're doing it to us. We don't understand even why we're accepting it being done to us. Yeah. Um, and then there's gaslighting and manipulation. Yeah. Those are huge. Those are right there with shame, like maybe even above shame, either equal or above shame, because the gaslighting and manipulation are real. And for myself, it made me feel crazy. It made me actually think I was crazy. Yeah. I am. Um, I remember twice that I packed a suitcase and said, if I leave, all their problems are over because I'm the problem. Yes. And in, in both of those instances, father came to me and said, you're not the problem. Yeah. Stop taking this on. You're not the problem. Yeah. You're not the problem, but kind of what we've been talking about is becomes problematic when you started, you know, taking on his problems or when you blamed yourself or when you ignored your intuition, maybe you started like settling for less. Right. I think that's what happens a lot of times when people experience what you did is they start ignoring their intuition because a lot of it is just because of conditioning. Like you said, divorce is not an option and it definitely not remarriage. If you get divorced, right. We have to kind of decondition ourselves from certain upbringings. And when we're not in a place to do that, it's hard to kind of hear intuitively, right. You knew from the get-go something was off, but you didn't know how to listen to that intuition or trust that. Or even what to do with it. Right. Like, what do I do with this? Like, this isn't normal, especially, you know, I remember you mentioning, you're like, I didn't even see any red flags <laughs> in your life. Now you can see probably red flags everywhere. I'm guessing <laughs> red flag, red flag. They're oh, yeah. everywhere. Yeah. I know. So tell us, okay, well, tell us a little bit more about your journey. We just have a little bit longer because I want to hear how you went from surviving to thriving. I want to be able to end with and help people understand that like, it's okay that you've experienced betrayal. It's okay that you've self-betrayed it. That is what is right. This deep level of acceptance and love of compassion for, for what you experienced, because a lot of, you know, people have experienced what you did. They just don't know what they don't know. And now that you're on the other side of that, share with us a little bit about that journey to get to thriving. So there's, there's so much that goes into that, right? Um, but I want to start with this question that a friend of mine asked me a couple of years ago. Um, she said, Beth, what would you say to that young girl? If you could go back, what would you do for her? And what would you say to her? Mm -hmm. And I had an answer pretty much immediately. I said, I would have compassion on her. So if you can't start anywhere else, have compassion on yourself, because as you've said several times, and I've said it myself, not today, but you've said it several times today, and I've said it myself, we don't know what we don't know. Mm -hmm. And we have to be able to have grace on ourselves with ourselves and compassion with ourselves, because if we don't know it, we don't know that we need to know it. 
until it's revealed to us or we gain understanding and we gain knowledge. And we just have to be, we just have to say, it's okay that I didn't know what I didn't know because that becomes part of our story. That becomes part of who we are and it, it helps to mold and shape our character right? into being more empathetic and compassionate with other people. So you'd, well. have, so you'd have compassion on her. So that was probably one of your steps. What else did you do? So um, compassion, definitely. Um, I started taking, I started practicing self-care. Okay. And for me, self-care is not getting my nails done. I have natural fingernails. I don't even like fingernail polish on my nails. <laughs> it's not getting massages. It's not getting facials. It's not eating the chocolate cake and taking the baths. Right. Self-care is much deeper than that. Those things are superficial. To practice true self-care, you have to go inward. Mm. I started journaling. I started writing down. And the pages of my journals are sloppy. And sometimes they're whole pages. And sometimes they're bullet points. And uh -huh. sometimes it's just scattered whatever comes to my mind. Um, I allowed myself and still allow myself to feel whatever it is. So we have these emotions that come up. We feel them naturally for about 90 seconds. Uh -huh. And if we feel those emotions for longer than 90 seconds, it's because we're choosing to feel them. We're choosing to sit in them and dwell in them. And that can be a good thing. Sometimes we do need to sit in those emotions and dwell in them and work through them and process them. But sometimes we need to just say, oh, that's what I feel right now and let it pass on through. Mm, uh -huh. um, journaling. Some people say I'm not a journal journaler. Well, if you draw, if you are an artist, then draw or paint those feelings if you can't put words to it. Um, something else that I did was I started using essential oils emotionally. Oh, wow. That in and of itself was massive. Hmm. So that first time I told him he had to move out in order to strengthen my boundaries and stay empowered in my boundaries, I used clove and ginger on the bottom of my feet morning and night. That's and it works. It works. <laughs> so clove and ginger, everyone write that down if you want to strengthen boundaries. I love it. <laughs> clove is the oil of boundaries and ginger is the oil of empowerment um and then i've used essential oils um like i've used jasmine i've used cinnamon i've used grapefruit um those can all be oils that are related to sexual health uh -huh. so i've used those to help me process and work through um i started the so the very first modality that i sought out is called Splachna. Okay, hold on. Say that again. Splachna. Splachna? What is that? S-P-L-A-N-K-N-A. Okay, Splachna. Splachna. So Splachna in Greek is guts. Okay. So I call Splachna focused spiritual warfare. It's partnering with the Holy Spirit asking if um, muscle testing is used 
And so it's asking the, the subconscious, the body, what, and the Holy Spirit, what do we need to work on? Mm-hmm. And honestly, Carrie, Corey, sorry, my practitioner was Carrie. <laughs> Corey. You're good. You're good. We rhyme. <laughs> um, that was so healing for me. I would recommend anybody seek out a practitioner and do it. Um, and then I've done EMDR. I've done CPT, cognitive processing therapy. I've done um, CBT, you know, whatever therapists use on you as you're talking with them and you do talk therapy. I've done that as well. Um, I use EFT for tapping. I yes. use that. Um, and in all of these different things, I have incorporated essential oils. Okay. Um, I'm sure there's something that I'm leaving out because I use so many different things. And yeah. each, each thing has its place. Each thing, um, you know, like in Splankna, I discovered that I had betrayed myself in being a mother. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, don't, I feel like you're not alone with that. We don't like us women. We are just like on one journey of discovery, one thing after the next, all our different roles and, and responsibilities that we take on as women in this world. So, so you learned about the betrayal that you had, like your self betrayal as a mother, you've had to heal. Yep. Okay. So the other thing that I've done is, um, prayer, prayer. Okay. Prayer. And find those promises in the Bible. The Bible is full of promises. Seek them out. Okay. And use them as affirmations. That's something else that I've done. I've used Bible verses as affirmations. Okay. Um, well, when you've been, when you've kind of gone through what you go through and that you dive into the world of like the, your own healing journey. And when you're committed to that, you really do discover that there are so many modalities. They, they help when they help. And then you move on to the next, or you kind of combine them all. And then you kind of learn and see what works and what doesn't work. Uh, because I've like, you have done everything. All of those things is kind of how I was able to move and heal from the trauma, like the trauma. And also one thing that I might add to your list is I had to take radical responsibility for like the roles that I played for the, the perspective that I had for, uh, the blame, right. The blame cycle that I would get stuck in or the shame, because just like you, when you mentioned, that all of us experienced emotions for 90 seconds. And after that, we're choosing it. Well, when you're not familiar and you don't have the capacity to say, experience your emotions, right? Our brain is always trying to make sense of, of how we feel. And, and a lot of times I used to think that I was a victim to even my thinking, like my brain was right. I didn't know how to look at, you know, air quote, what happened to me differently because I was in a, such a cycle of shame and blame. You know, and then when I learned to, to be able to almost rewrite my story, I think that's the beauty that comes from learning to thrive is that you, not only do you talk about your story differently, because you also start seeing it differently. You, you also see, I like to say God's hand was in it the whole time, mm. right. From a spiritual perspective and essentially you know, thriving to me just is coming home to yourself. 
really, really being at peace with who you are, no matter what, no matter what is happening around you or to you. What do you think about that? Yes, I would agree with that. And there's one thing I'm going to add to that list. Okay. Tell me. And it's something that I still do. Um, is I joined a 12 step group. Okay. So there's, um, sexaholics anonymous that is for the sexually addicted spouse and then then there's sexaholics um sorry yes oh i'm getting them confused there's esanon yes so i'm part of esanon okay um so i i had been part of a group that's about 45 minutes from me and that group disbanded and so actually where I live um, we started a new group and so I'm part of that I'm kind of on my second go around through the group and talking about taking radical responsibility that is one of the steps oh nice it's not that's not what it's called but um, one of the steps is taking a fearless moral inventory Like, where did I contribute to the problem? Oh my gosh. A fearless, I'm writing that down, a fearless moral inventory. How hard was that for you to do? Honestly. Oh my word. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That is like, um, I'd rather not do that stuff. Let's just skip it. Yes, I know. But at the same time, there were things I did to contribute to the problem. Okay. And I'm totally good with owning those things because if I'm not willing to own those things right that's a self-betrayal yes that's like the ultimate self-betrayal is when you're not willing okay you're not willing to own your responsibility to the problem beautifully said I could have not said it better myself thank you uh because when I think about because you know self-betrayal is usually when I'm the most unhappiest, but we're going to go back to what you said, taking a fearless, fearless moral inventory, as painful as that process might be, what did it look like for you on the other side? Oh, on the other side, it's like, because it's so easy to blame. Oh yeah. It's so easy. Well, if he hadn't, well, if I had known Right. Well, if other people had been honest with me. Right. But on the other side, it's like, okay, these are the things I did to contribute. I know that I can repent for them. And the 12 steps groups don't say, call it repentance, but you make amends. Right. And um, if I'm able to make amends and repent for my part of the problem, then what kind of spiritual and emotional maturity does that show? I mean, sexaholics typically don't want to take responsibility for their behavior. There's a lack of emotional, spiritual, mental maturity. But you have to have spiritual, emotional, mental maturity in order to say, Yes, this was my fault. This is how I contributed to the problem. Right. No, I didn't cause the problem. 
but this is how I contributed to it. Yeah, there's two, you know, those are two very important things to remember, the cause and the contribution, two separate things. And it's easy that when you are, I'll just use for lack of a better word, when you're a victim to the type of experiences that you had, it's easy to want to take responsibility. But what you're saying is, no, there is, there's the cause and there's the contribution and get really, really clear with that. And that is part of the healing that you will experience to thrive. Beth, thank you so much. Um, I want you to tell our listeners, how can we find you? What do you want to leave them with? How can they find you? And what is your offer as a coach today? Okay. So what I want to leave them with is um, this journey. You do not have to take it alone. Okay. There is, um, there is support out there. Mm -hmm. I didn't know the resources available to me 15, 20 years ago. I know about them now and I don't really need them now, but I didn't know about them 15, 20 years ago. There are um, places that support domestic violence. There, there's places that are advocates for that. Sexual abuse, if you are being maritally raped, that is domestic violence. Yes. And you can, you need to get away. Because my experience has been, and I think others have had the same experience, if there is sexual abuse happening to you, there's probably other kinds of physical abuse happening in the home as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want you to know you're not alone. You don't have to face this alone. And the antidote to shame, because we all carry shame because we married these men, because our part in contributing to the problem Um the antidote to shame is vulnerability. Highly recommend Brene Brown's research on shame and vulnerability. She has several books. She has a podcast. She has TED Talks. Look her up. That's when I really started speaking out and sharing. And people were like, we had no idea. Yeah, you had no idea because I put on this great, happy face. Everything was perfect in my world, but it wasn't. Um, so look up shame and vulnerability for Brown, but the antidote to your shame is being vulnerable with other people. Make sure they're safe people. Yeah. Know who safe people are. Okay. Um, and how to find me. Um, I have a website and this, when my divorce is final, I'm going back to my maiden name. So this is my maiden name. It's Beth Brunk. B-E-T-H-B-R-U-N-K at Podia, P-O-D-I-A dot com. Okay. And Beth Brunk at Proton dot M-E, the P-R-O-T-O-N dot M-E. And I'm Beth Brunk Coaching on Instagram. Good. Okay. What is your offer? Are you coaching right now? One-on-one group? What do you do? I am coaching one-on-one. Um. <coughs> Excuse you. Bless you. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I'm coaching one-on-one and um, I offer three months coaching packages. Okay. Okay. So 
that can be three times a month or four times a month, just depending on how many weeks there are in a month. And um, you can find all of that information on my website. My gosh, Beth, it has been such a treat to talk to you and to hear, uh, just to hear your story and where you're at today. And for those who can't even see her face, she's glowing. She is an incredible, incredible witness of what doing the hard work and healing and taking radical responsibility and coming home to herself looks like. So she would be an absolute treat for those who've experienced and are needing help with betrayal trauma in any way. She is your coach. All right. Thank you, Beth, for joining us. And we will put all of the information in the show notes today so that you know how to find her. Any of the books that she recommended will be there too. Have a great day and thanks for joining us. Bye. Thank you, Corey.